All right, well, happy Mother's Day. Thank you, thank you. There's one mother here that uh, said thank you. Yeah, we appreciate you guys being here. I wanted to read this uh, from USA Today. This is an op-ed journalist. His wife's a journalist as well, or was. Listen to what he says here. My wife's job can be brutal. Monica easily works 80 hours a week and is on call 24-7. 3 a.m. intrusions are the norm. The demands of her job change by the day, if not the hour. If she wants to get something done, she generally has to do it herself. Her two direct reports don't follow instructions, and they've been known to outright refuse her request while throwing a fit. One of the two still slobbers. <laughs> if you want to see her job description at Career Builders, you'd likely run the, uh, run the other way, but Monica would be the first to say that raising a three-year-old and a 10-month-old boy uh, is in many ways her dream job. Combining her diverse skills uh, into uh, um, skill sets into the work of developing the boys, crafting our legacy, and nurturing thoughtful men for the next generation, she cherishes every opportunity to witness their every milestone and wonder-filled moment of play. Though we live in a society obsessed with categories, Monica cannot be reduced to a stay-at-home mom, a label conceived decades ago to paper over the infinitely worse uh, uh, housewife. The stay in the title is particularly laughable as Monica puts three to four times the miles on her car as mine. She's the rare person in type A saturated Washington, D.C., who decided that the best way to use her talents, even mid-career, was in raising our two children full-time. It's a great story. We appreciate all moms. We know some of you are stay-at-home moms. Some of you uh, have a job. Uh, we get that, but we appreciate all moms and the, the, the legacy you are building into the lives of your children. We'll have some application uh, later on in the service, but I wanted just to wish you happy Mother's Day and thank you uh, for all that you do. So we've been involved in a series of sermons through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to continue that series in June and July, and there's so much in the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue it in June and July, and then we're going to take a break in August, and we're going to pick it back up in the fall and finish out the book of Hebrews. During this month of May and one week in June, what I'd like to do is to look at uh, um, 11 verses in the book of Acts and determine how what we have learned from Hebrews applied in the early church. The unmistakable theme of Hebrews, as you read through the book, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is supreme overall. His authority is supreme. His intimacy is supreme. His effectiveness is supreme. And what we want to do as we look at the book of Acts is to see how the supremacy of Jesus, how that relates to a response to the resurrection. We just had Easter a few weeks ago. We celebrated Easter. And, and I think sometimes we celebrate Easter as an event. But what I want to do is to go back and see how the resurrection affects our response to how we should live, the supremacy of Jesus we talk, we've been talking about. And there are two questions I'd like to deal with. The first question today is, what difference did the resurrection make? What, what difference did it make? And the second one is more applicable for us today. What difference is the resurrection making? 
What difference is the resurrection making in your life? Now, I want to be totally upfront. During these messages, I'm going to apply what we learn to our revisioning efforts that we call Beyond These Walls. And we're going to uh, be uh, committing for the next three years to give over and above our, our general giving. You either got or will get on your way out this little piece of uh, information right here. And don't look at it now, but this will tell you everything we have going on for the next three years, the revisioning for the next three years. Not our core ministries, because that goes on every week, week in, week out, uh, Sundays, Wednesdays, all through the week. But these are the revisioning for the beyond these walls for the next three years. And we're going to ask you to give to that. We're going to ask you to be praying. We're asked to be serving, ask you to give. And on or by June the 11th, you can fill out a card. You can pick up those cards on the way out as well, or you can go online, and you can determine between you and the Lord, you can determine what you will do, how you will participate uh, in Beyond These Walls. Again, I'm going to leave that to you. It's between you and the Lord. It's only God prompting your heart uh, to give. Everything else is manipulation or guilt, and we're not about that here. Okay, so back to my questions. What difference did the resurrection make, and what difference is the resurrection making? Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, you can look it up on your phones, or you can have it right there in the printed Word. And today I want to look at the first 11 verses, and then I want to go back through the passage, and after we look at those verses and emphasize what I believe are two critical points for us to know today as we live out this resurrection faith we're going to be talking about. So let's pray and ask God for His help before we look at His Word. Father, we thank You that You are a God who loves us so much. Not only did You send Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins on the cross, but You have provided for us the written Word, Your inspired, authoritative Word, your infallible Word that teaches us and guides us and exhorts us and encourages us. And we pray, Father, that your Word would do that for us today. Wherever we are in our life, whatever we're going through, whatever situation you have us involved in at this time, we pray, Lord, that your Word would encourage us today. Do your work through your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me set the context for the book of Acts. When you look at the book of Acts, you see in the first four words that this is a second book written. The writer Luke says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I uh, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke has written another book, and it's called The Gospel of Luke. Now that book is uh, critical in laying out the life of Christ, and it's interesting as you look at the book to see how Luke starts it. Luke was a doctor, a researcher, a fact finder, and we see that in his prologue to the book of Luke, he explains his research technique. Check out what he says. In so much, well, I'm looking at Luke chapter 1, verse 1, in so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who most excellent Theophilus was. A lot of people say he was a, a Roman official. His name, if you break it down, Theo and Philos means lover of God, but there's no indication that, that he was a believer. It was a common name in that time. Probably, a lot of people think that he, was a, he commissioned Luke to do this. He, he funded some of the work that Luke was doing. But he writes his orderly account for Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. you got to know these things, Salafis. you got to make sure that you have these things nailed down in your life. And so Luke writes his gospel. He, he, he researched it out. He went to the eyewitnesses. He went to the people who were there. He said, tell me who Jesus was. Tell me about Jesus. And no doubt, one of the persons, one of the people he went to was Mary. We have more detailed information about the life of Christ and about Mary that only could have come from her, we find in the book of Luke. All right, he writes two volumes. His second volume is the book of Acts. That's the primary prologue. So the same thing, the same research, the same good work he does in the book of Luke, he's going to do in the book of Acts as well. And it's interesting, if you look at the book of Acts, you'll find that in the first 15 chapters of Acts, or 28 chapters in Acts, in the first 15 chapters... Luke is, is doing his research. He's asking people. He, he's checking people out. He wants to know what happened. And you'll see the pronoun there, they. They traveled here. They did this. They did this. But then in chapter 16, something interesting happens. The pronoun changes from they to we. Luke's now on the journeys with Paul. Luke's now seeing it firsthand himself. He's just not depending on eyewitnesses. He's checking it out himself. And so we see in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, that Luke is writing this book, his second volume, to show us all that Jesus began to do, and now he's going to continue telling us what Jesus is doing. Look at verse uh, 3. Luke says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. So after Jesus died, Luke says he presented himself alive. He'll tell us later that he presented himself alive for 40 days. Jesus was demonstrating that he was alive. And the word proof there is a very interesting word. Again, Luke is going to choose his words carefully. In the Greek, the word proof means hard evidence. Jesus gave them hard evidence. He gave them infallible signs. He gave them undeniable manifestations of himself in bodily form. When Jesus wants us to step out on faith, when he has something significant for us to do, he will always give us proof. And it was in those 40 days of appearances. Now, Jesus wasn't there for 40 straight days with the disciples. He would appear here, and then he'd leave, and then he'd appear here, and then he'd leave. But for 40 days, he made these appearances. And it was during this 40 days of his appearances that the, that, 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 that a switch flipped in the hearts of the disciples. The disciples moved from being, from, from believing in the resurrection just as an event, and they began to demonstrate a resurrection faith. Just think about that for a second. They stopped believing in the resurrection just as an event, but they began to demonstrate a resurrection faith. 
Now, when Jesus died, the Roman and Jewish leaders thought that that was it. The movement would die with him. They had seen that happen many times. And they had every right to think that, didn't they? Before Jesus was crucified, his disciples took off. They ran from him. And then after he was crucified, after he died on the cross, they hid thinking they were going to be next. The Roman historian Tacitus said this, the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time. F.F. Bruce, in his book, New Testament History, if you don't have that book, get it. It's a great book. Uh, F.F. Bruce says this, None of the authorities, whether Roman or Jewish, could have reckoned with the event that confounded all their calculations. Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples alive again after his suffering. Not even the disciples themselves had reckoned with it. It took them quite by surprise. But check this out. It transformed them almost on the spot from a crowd of demoralized and frightened people into a band of men with a mission and purpose in life with, without, which without delay they proceeded to translate into what? Into action. Isn't that cool? It was a resurrection that took this group of, of, of people demoralized, afraid, cowards in a corner and changed their lives and put them on a mission that translated into action. So that's the answer to the first question. What difference did the resurrection make? But here's the second question for us. What difference is the resurrection making? Has the resurrection event produced in your life a true resurrection faith. That's something you need to reflect on. Has a resurrection event produced in your life a true resurrection faith? So a few weeks ago we had Easter, right? And um, we had like five services here, two Saturday night, three on, three on Sunday. All of our campuses had extra services. We had like 6,000 people here over that weekend. That's 2,000 more than normal. Where did they go? Where are those people? For some, the resurrection, Easter is an event that doesn't have lasting significance. But for the true believer, Resurrection is resurrection faith that impacts every day of our lives. Well, let's think of, of it this way. Mother's Day, right? Mother's Day is an event. Someone back years ago said, we're going to have Mother's Day as an official, official day to celebrate mothers, this, this, this privileged calling of motherhood. Now suppose that on this day you go all out for your mom as many of you, I'm sure, have already done, fixed breakfast and taken it to your mom as she was in bed, right? How many of you, eh, never mind, we'll go on. Um, <laughs> you, you, you bought her uh, a, a great gift, just the gift that she wanted, just exactly what she wanted. Suppose you spend the day, you're going to go home, and you're going to fix a great dinner uh, for your mom. If you're of the age where you, where you can cook, and you're going to clean up afterwards. That's going to be the amazing thing. I can actually clean up 
Amen. <laughs> Let me know next week if that works out, okay? Now, suppose you did all that, right? And then tomorrow, you didn't talk to your mom at all, appropriately, or you didn't call, or you didn't demonstrate your love. So you treated Mother's Day as an event with no lasting significance. See, a true son or daughter, you don't need to have Mother's Day because you want to honor your mother every day. That's what a lot of people do with the resurrection, right? Like to come, like to dress up, like to sing the songs. They treat the resurrection as an event. But the real question is, what difference is the resurrection making in your life for true sons and daughters of the living God. The resurrection translates into resurrection faith that's demonstrated into action as we follow hard after Jesus Christ. So Jesus appeared to his disciples. He told them to stay put in Jerusalem. Something cool was going to happen in Jerusalem. Verse 5, for John baptized with water but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And they, this wasn't something new to them. Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit's going to come. So now he's telling them, you stay here in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit's going to come. Now, they didn't quite get it. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They still wanted, they had been wanting Jesus all along to become a political Messiah. And now they're saying, are you going to do that now? Are you going to be the political Messiah we really want you to be? Man, some people are still looking for that political Messiah, aren't they? Still think it's going to happen from Washington, D.C. They thought it was going to happen from Jerusalem. But here's what Jesus said. It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed his own authority. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about when I'm coming again. Don't worry about when I, when, I, when I am going to set up this earthly kingdom. I got things for you to do now. Look at verse 8. But you will receive what? Try it again. You will receive power <clears throat> when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Let's just think about that. What does that mean? When you become a believer, you are indwelt immediately, not as some second work of grace, not later on, but you are indwelt immediately by the Holy Spirit. He comes and lives within us. He is with us and will forever be if you're a true child of God. So what does it mean to have that power? What does it mean to have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us? Now, it certainly does not mean we're going to be perfect. And it does not mean that, that we're not going to fall and fail, because we will in our humanness. But think about it. We have as believers, if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God, you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. What does that mean? What does that look like? The Greek word power is the word dynamis. And it means ability. It means capability. It means to strengthen or equip for every task or mission. 
Let's think about how it's used in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with what? The power through His Spirit in your inner being. He's going to grant you to be strengthened, whatever you're going through. And I don't know, some of you are going through some tough stuff. But whatever you're going through, the Holy Spirit, as a believer, the Holy Spirit living in you will strengthen you in your inner being to do everything God's calling you to do, even the most difficult assignment. You can never say as a believer, this is too hard for me. This temptation is too much for me. I can't handle this anymore. God will always give you everything you need to do what He's called you to do. That's part of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the same power that Jesus had when He was on earth. Luke chapter 4, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Everything we see that Jesus did, He did through the power, all His miracles, All the healings. You say, well, we should be doing miracles and healings today. No, those were sign gifts for that time to demonstrate God's power. Today, we're the sign. We're the one to demonstrate God's power. We're the one to demonstrate that Jesus is alive and well and working in the world. Now, the greatest demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in the life of Jesus was not in the miracles. The greatest demonstration of God's power in the life of Jesus was when? When God raised him from the dead. The resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. And he was declared to be the son of God. Jesus put his stamp of approval. When Jesus died on the cross, he's in the grave. And God is saying everything he did was good. Everything he did was perfect. He died to bring men to himself. My stamp of approval, boom, he declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's how God's power was demonstrated in the life of Christ. One more, Ephesians chapter 1, 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who, have, who, us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he what? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection is a tremendous power that God demonstrated in the life of Christ. And by the way, and I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand all this. That's the same power that lives in us. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the resurrection is the same power that lives in us. The believer has the Holy Spirit living in him or her. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God living in us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to godly action if we have turned the resurrection event into resurrection faith. Now, after the Holy Spirit, or after Jesus gave these words, promise of the Holy Spirit, look at verse 9. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud, and he began a, a cloud, uh, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from from you into heaven will come in the same 
way as you saw him go from heaven. So one of these days, Jesus is going to come back in the clouds. But it doesn't mean we should be standing out looking for that to happen. And some people treat like the second coming as a hobby, right? Don't they? I remember a guy I used to know a long time ago. He went out to his garage and he like cut out all these newspapers of what he thought were fulfilled prophecies and stuff and had them on the wall. Now I think, okay, what good does that do? He's there gazing up into the heavens, right? Jesus said, or these angels said, don't do that. He's coming back. But in the meantime, I've got work for you to do. I've got things for you to accomplish. I've got a mission for you. I've got a purpose for you. This is urgent. We've got to get going. And we see that in two significant points as we go back through this passage. Here's the first one I want you to see. Look again at, at Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Underline that in your Bibles. Circle in your Bibles if you've got your digital phones. Highlight it. All that Jesus began to do and teach. See what Luke's saying? He's saying Jesus was not finished with his work when he ascended to heaven. Before he was taken up, he did things on the earth. That's what he began to do here. But he's still working. He continues to do his work. That word began is so critical in our understanding of the person of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. The phrase began to do and teach divides the work of Jesus into two great parts. The first part is his work on earth. He was here. He lived. He was a man of history. He died on a cross. We, we, we have the Gospels that explain what he did here. That was the first part of his work. But that was just the beginning. When he went to heaven, what's he doing now? He's still at work. He's working from heaven. He used to work on the earth. Now he's working from heaven. And how does he work from heaven? Through us. Tag, you're it. Here's the job I have for you. Here's the mission I have for you. Jesus said, I'm still at work. I'm still doing the things. I just began to do those things when I was working. Now I got you. And I got a mission for you and a purpose for you. I got great things for you to do. I'm going to empower you to do them. There's nothing I'm going to ask you to do that you can't do through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. One commentator says it like this. Hence the grand history of what Jesus did and taught does not conclude with his departure to the Father. But Luke now begins it in a higher strain. For all the subsequent labors of the apostles are just an exhibition of the ministry of the glorified Redeemer himself because they were acting under his authority. And he was the principal power that operated in them. When you see the apostles' work... Jesus is the principal power operating through them. He's still at work. He's still getting the glory. He is still the redeemer. He is still the one who's to be honored. He himself is working, but now he is working through us. He's the principal power that does that. He was then and he still is today. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is operating in us. And what work is he calling us to do? What does he want us to do? Well, there are some specific things, but let's look general. Chapter 1, verse 8, 
but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That word in the Greek, witnesses, is the Greek word martyr. It came to be known as someone who would give their life for Jesus Christ, become a martyr for Christ. But you know what a person does long before they die for Christ? They live for Christ. That's what the word means. You're a martyr not just dying for Christ. You're a martyr as you live for Christ. You are His witness. The word means that your life is a statement. That I'm all in for Jesus Christ. Come what may. I don't care what other people say. I don't care what other people do. This is my guide. Jesus is my Lord. I'm making a statement to live for Him. That's what it means to be a witness. It means I'm going to make a demonstration. My life's going to be about Jesus. It's not about myself. It's not about my stuff. It's about Jesus. My life is a demonstration for Him. I'm a martyr. I'm a witness. My life is a proclamation of my love for Him. I want to demonstrate with everything I am and everything I have that I'm in love with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a witness for Him. And we are to make that statement for Him in Jerusalem, where we are, in Judea and Samaria, broader area, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, in those days, the people would be thinking about Spain and Asia as the ends of the earth. But in our day, we know it goes a lot farther than that. That's where God's called us to. Now, we use this verse to frame our beyond these walls vision. Our Jerusalem is home. Our Judea, community. Our Samaria, nation. Into the, into the uh, uh, earth, the world. So we have four buckets, right? Home bucket, community bucket, national bucket, international bucket. Some people say, why do you have all those buckets? Because we don't know which part of Acts 1-8 to delete. Which one, which one you want to delete? They're all there. They're not either ors. They're both ands. And Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Why do you have all these initiatives? Because we got things to do. God's put us on a, on a track to do the things He's called us to do. How are we going to do all these things? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't call you to do anything He won't equip you to do. All right, since it's Mother's Day, let's just focus on the home bucket, okay? Our children and youth are in the process of making up their minds about resurrection faith. And I think you'll agree that they are living in a dramatically changing world. Once there was a general agreement about Judeo-Christian values in our country, but no more. Even among those who call themselves born-again Christians or evangelical Christians, research shows that those in, in, in those categories are all over the board in their theological beliefs. George Barna just came out uh, with a report, and here's what he found out. 70, 77% of all who say they're born-again Christians believe that people are just basically good. Forget Genesis 3, forget Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Forget the doctrine of original sin 77% say all people are just basically good. 
67 argue that having faith is more important than which faith you embrace. Forget the resurrection faith if you just have faith. 67% of people who say they're born-again Christians. Uh, I talked to a couple last night. They had been in Boston, and they said several. They saw several signs up there in front of churches that says, we, we invite or we embrace all faiths. Christian churches, forget Jesus, just have faith. Barna concluded in his studies, he asked a question, how many of you present the gospel, your message about Christ, at least once a month? And after everything he got from the other uh, data, here's what he concluded. Less than one out of every 10 adults who shared a message about their faith with other people at least once a month during the previous year communicated a biblically accurate message of the gospel. Only less than one in 10, he concluded, are, are, are communicating an accurate biblical message of the gospel. Guys, we are in trouble. The digital world has changed the way we live. Most of us, at least in my age range, entered this world as digital immigrants. We just, we just kind of moved in, right? Or it moved into us, I guess is a better way to say it. But our children are digital natives. By the time our children are 20 years old, they're going to have spent 20,000 hours accessing the Internet. Now, that's scary. 10,000 hours playing video games. And this digital saturation is taking place when they are in their formative years and their brain is developing and is sensitive to outside influences. For many far too young and older, pornography is hitting like never before. Now, when I was growing up, at least you had to sneak around the counter of the convenience store to make sure no one was looking, right? Come on, guys. No one did that besides me, huh? Okay. Now all you have to have is a, an iPhone, an Internet connection, and you don't even have to go look for it. Eighty percent of pornography is free, and it's being pushed to our kids. Now, I know some of you moms are saying, not my little Johnny. No, 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 no. He would never think of it. God's going to have to wake up. God wired your little Johnny to be visually stimulated. Pornography has been an issue since the oldest book of the Bible was written. Job. Why else would Job say, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman? If that wasn't an issue, why would you? And that was before the Internet pretty sure, right? <laughs> so what are you going moms, what are you going to do about that? What decisions are you going to make? That's the world you're living in. That's the cards you're dealt. That's the reality. Too many people like curse the reality, but don't deal with it. Got to deal with it. During Easter, our, our uh, our youngest daughter was home, and she brought a friend of hers from California. And I, was at, I asked them, what, what one um, program are, are college kids watching? Like if there's one program that all college, and she had to go to a Christian college. What, if there's one program that all college kids watch, what is it? 
Anyone, anyone want to venture a guess? Thirteen reasons why. Moms, if you don't know what 13 reasons why is, you better know. The series is on Netflix. It's based on a book by Jay Asher, written a decade ago. The story is about a 17-year-old girl who commits suicide, and she leaves tapes behind for all the people she says caused her to commit suicide. Many are speaking out, not just from religious or uh, Christian circles, but many are speaking out, concerned that this is going to uh, glorify suicide. Uh, the girl who commits suicide is the heroine uh, in, in the movie or in the, in the series. Executive producer is Selena Gomez. She says she's very proud of the show. It's filled with language. If nothing else, the language that gets trapped in the mind, like pouring sewer water into a glass and drinking it is like pouring language and all that stuff into our heart and then pretending we're going to have a pure heart after that. Guys, college students and high school students, stop watching this stuff. You don't need your mom and dad to tell you that. It's not good for you. This controversial show has been contracted for another season, so there's going to be another 13 reasons why or some other one. I have been told, I'm not seeing it, but the language is, is terrible, and, and a graphic scene of a girl slitting her wrists, I guess, opens up every show. That's, that is the most popular show out there. So, moms, what are you going to do about that? Our children are our most vulnerable liability. Would you agree with that? They're in the process of making up their minds. And when we lose our children, we don't lose one generation. We lose generations for Jesus Christ. As a church, we have to invest in our children and youth. They have to be our top priority. Now, it's fantastic to take care of kids in the slums of Mathari, and we continue to do that. And it's fantastic to do things with the orphans in Panama, and we continue to do that. But we're not going to continue to do that out there and not take care of our kids here. That's a crime. That is a crime. And it gets so, I'm going to say it, irritated at people who say, Look at all the money in the home bucket. We should be sending all the money overseas. If we send all the money overseas, we won't have anyone to go overseas in the next 10 years. We've got to do the work here, and it is urgent. And we're asking you to get involved, and we're asking you to pray, and it's just serve, and we're asking you to give. This is urgent stuff. This is what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ, to make a statement about Him. And moms... Guys, moms, I want to just say this. Every Mother's Day, I get dogged by all the fathers. They say, oh, you are so hard on us on Father's Day. Bunch of wimps, actually. You're so hard on us on Father's Day. But you, Ma, you know, you just give this encouraging word for the moms. Well, not encouraged, not, not as fluffy today. You spend more time with your children than their father does. They're going to learn more about Jesus Christ 
and what it looks like to have a dynamic faith in Him from you, if you just look at it from a time perspective, more than the dads. For sure, dads have a tremendous influence. Tremendous influence. But you can't neglect yours. How are you going to nourish that precious gift God has given you? How are you going to protect that precious gift God has given you? How are you going to make sure that the sewage of the Internet and pornography is not pouring right into your child's iPhone that you are providing for them? What are you going to do with the gift that God has given you? I don't care if your kid's the only one who doesn't have something. And that's what they'll tell you, right? You've got to be the parent. Because you don't parent all the kids in the world. You just parent yours. You've got to step it up to be the mom that God has called you to be. You cannot delegate your God-given responsibility. Well, I send my kid to Christian school. Come on. The youth group's supposed to do that. No, we cannot do that. The responsibility to demonstrate what it looks like to live for Jesus Christ, to demonstrate a powerful, Holy Spirit-lived life, tag, you are it. The grand call of Acts 1-8 is to the nations. But even the grander call. Starts right here at home, doesn't it? Our children are our most vulnerable liability, and we cannot lose them. And that doesn't start here at church. That starts in your home. And we want to do everything we can to support it. But you've got to be doing it well at home. Kirk's going to lead us in a song uh, here in just a second, let me pray, and then I'll ask you to stand. Father, we need your help in doing this. Man, you have given us such a tremendous, tremendous gift in our children and such a heavy responsibility. We can't do it on our own. We need your strength. We need your help. We need to do the things you're calling us to do. We need to stand firm in a world that, is, that, is, that counters everything we teach, everything we believe. And Father, we have to demonstrate in a loving way, in a nourishing way, in a protecting way that we are all in for Jesus Christ, that we are the witnesses, the demonstrators of this resurrection faith you've called us to be. So Father, drive home the points of specific application among every mom here today. Have parents have good, difficult conversations with their kids. What are they watching? What are they involved in? Help the kids here to be those who, if they're the only ones not watching this stuff, to be willing to say, as a witness for Jesus Christ and my love for Christ, I'm going to make a statement in my own life. I love Jesus too much to pour the sewer into my soul. Father, help us to be what you've called us to be by the power of your spirit. That is our prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.